Uh, to start off, uh, I want to start off with a question. Uh, what makes you marvel? What takes your breath away? When you look at something, what is it that just makes you go, <gasps> gasp? In, in preparation for this sermon, I asked myself that question, and I go fig, right? Um, I came up with a couple answers myself. One of them uh, are my hands. My hands make me marvel. Um, if you were to uh, poll my wife, and I'll just say, hey, what are some odd things about Dan? She'll give you a list. And I guarantee you on that list would be uh, kind of a, a birthday ritual that I have. And it's the first thing I do uh, every year on my birthday, from the minute my eyes wake uh, open, rather, and I wake up, uh, I just look at my hands for about five minutes. Five minutes. I just stare at my hands, looking at them. And what actually I do in that time is, yeah, I'm, I'm just looking at the, the physical aspect of them, like what new scars do I have? How are the old ones doing? How dirty are my nails? Do they need to be clipped? All these things. <laughs> but also, more importantly, what have my hands done over the past year? It's kind of just a mental inventory. Uh, what goals had I set that I accomplished or didn't accomplish? Uh, what is God? What have I allowed God to use my hands for over the last year? And then I set maybe a new goal or two uh, in that five minutes. Like I say, it's very, it's a short time. I don't spend hours on it. Um, but yeah, that, that makes me marvel. Just my hands, year to year. Uh, feel free to ask me about it next uh, next time my birthday rolls around. I'll tell you what I saw. Lines. Uh, another answer to my question actually was this little girl. I, I am I'm a new dad, so I get to do this. Um, that's my daughter Autumn. That's a picture for those in the back corner over there. She's over there. You can stare at her, yeah, in, in, in you know in, in flesh over there. Uh, but she she's a wonder to me. Uh, she makes me marvel just because of how God brought her into uh, Cindy and mine's life. But rather than me uh, just telling you, hey, this is what makes me marvel, uh, in preparation for this sermon, I decided to ask, well, what makes other people marvel? So during the second hour, I went to some of the, the groups that met, and I, had, I just asked them the question, hey, what makes you marvel? And I received uh, from each group a, a good list of things, and as I was uh, reading through those, there were some good repeats. And so I'm like, ah, I better categorize this because that's the way my mind works. So I broke them into three different things. The arts, kind of the sciences, and then God's creation because... So in the arts, actually, we, we look at this, and I saw things like someone said, a beautiful painting, sculpture, uh, music, all these things, the creativity, the, the beauty that is in there. Not just uh, like with paintings, not just the painting itself, but the, the master work that went into it with the brush strokes and the technique, all these things, just the creativity. It's, it's a marvel to see those things. Same thing with music, because there's a ton of theory for music uh, to, to bring those together, to bring a symphony together, to bring a song together. Uh, to move our emotions, those are a marvel. And we have things in, in the science, right? Um, looking at just the human body itself. 
Uh, I, I mean, I stare at my hands great, but there are other, like the mind. How does the brain work? Our DNA, an eyeball, uh, all these different facets, how hair grows. I mean, there's just all these different marvels that we have. Uh, we also have, uh, in the science, we have technology. And I'm not just talking about all, like, I mean, we have a ton of tech up here, right? We've got lights here and all this. But thinking about all the technology that surrounds us, I'm going to guess a fair number of you just looking at the parking lots, a fair number came in cars, trucks. Uh, if you go into your house, you have a box that remains cold and keeps food fresh, provided you eat it in a timely manner. Otherwise, you get the, the green stuff hanging out in the back. Uh, running water is a technology, a stove. These, are, these are, are marvels. It's like, this is great. I don't have to hike 15 miles to go get water and come back and... I dumped half of it on the way back. None of that. I just turned a faucet on, water. So there's those types of, uh, of science, I mean, uh, technology rather, uh, TV, radio, all that good stuff. And then the last section where you can see both science and art is in God's creation. Um, included in that are uh, sunsets, sunrises. That was on there. Uh, this is a shot from... Lincoln City, uh, a nice uh, sunset over the Pacific Ocean. Just beautiful. Uh, so we have that that we, we marvel at. just like, it's beautiful. And then we have uh, this shot. A um, couple, uh, couple of the next shots are actually of this hummingbird. The, the coloring on the, on the back of the uh, feathers, you've got, if you go to the next one, Rich, you've got the detail of just how that bird is crafted, how small it is. Its beak, what it's used for to gather nectar. Its tongue, which just blows my mind. We have a very creative God. And this makes, this makes me marvel, and it made others marvel as well. Uh, looking kind of up, we have this guy showing up, the moon. Uh, just, one, the fact that it's there. Two, we can see the, the detail, the, the craters and everything that... Uh, hits it, uh, rather the meteors that hit that make the craters going around the planet. It's an awesome thing. Looking past even the moon, um, we can see from where we stand our own galaxy. Um, you can't see it too well there. Uh, if we were to dim the lights, you'd actually see the Milky Way galaxy. Beauty. Uh, you may, might be able to make out the silhouette of Mount St. Helen there, but there's also a thunderstorm going on there. So you've got a few different things to marvel out there that we can see our own, our own galaxy, or at least part of it. Uh, and speaking of that, even on the next slide, you'll see this is the Andromeda galaxy. This is the next closest galaxy to ours. Just uh, the fact that we can look out and see it is amazing. And the last one here is actually my favorite, uh, if I could get the lights one more time, because the, the colors honestly here, this is the... Eastern Vale Nebula. It's a star that exploded. These are the colors that come out of that. I just, it's awesome that those are out there. And we sit here and we, we can marvel at them and go, and just be amazed at the creativity and the beauty of God's creation. So not only did I... Did I uh, go out there and say, hey, what makes us marvel? But looking to the scriptures, hey, where did other people marvel? Or what did other people marvel at, rather? As we look in the scripture, 
specifically, I looked in the New Testament, and we see a few places. One of those is Matthew uh, 8, kind of verse uh, 27-ish. Um, short synopsis, the disciples are in a boat, obviously on a lake, going somewhere, a storm comes up, Jesus calms the wind and waves, and that verse says that they marveled at the power that Jesus had there to do that, that even waves and wind obeyed what he said. In Matthew 9, 33, there's a comment where the crowds marveled at what Jesus had done for a mute man. He was being oppressed by a demon and could not talk, and Jesus cast the demon out, and now he spoke, and they marveled at that. In uh, Mark 5, we have a, an account where Jesus casts out another demon from a man who had been tormented for years. He lived in a graveyard, all these things. He, uh, I would encourage you to read it. He casts the, this demon out into a herd of pigs. There's a whole story behind that. Um, we, we don't have time for. But at the end of this, this man begs Jesus as they're getting in the boat and ready to move on. He's begging Jesus, can I come with you? Please, can I come with you? And Jesus says, go to your hometown and proclaim what the Lord has done for you. And he does that, and it says that the people of that town marveled at what had been done for him. So there are some examples of people who marveled at, you know, kind of positive things, actually very positive things that Jesus had done. How about what... uh, Maybe, maybe they marveled in a negative way too, right? So I looked for that. In Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth. He's going to the synagogue as he does on the Sabbath. And he's reading a portion of Isaiah. And at the end of that, uh, he hands the scroll to the attendant and he says this, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And these men marveled at what he said. It says, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, this is the dude from down the road, man. Like, we know who his parents are, all these things. And they get so agitated, they actually try and throw him off a cliff. Like, that's their intent. Is we're going, he's heresy, let's toss him. Um, that's another exciting story. I encourage you to read that one. See how it ends. Um, but they, they marveled at what he was saying, Right? So how about Jesus himself? Did he ever marvel at anything? Was he amazed by stuff? He was was at the creation of the universe. Remember this. There are a couple of instances, though, where the gospel writers tell us that he was amazed, that he marveled. One such place is in Mark 6. Actually, this is uh, Mark's account of that same... That same uh, story that Luke was telling in four, where he he marvels at the men's there, there the people's lack of faith. He, it says he marveled at that, and he didn't perform many miracles or anything in, in Nazareth, but moved on. In Matthew alone, you read about five times, a little maybe a little more than we would like, that Jesus says, "Oh, you of little faith." Like I say, it's about five times in total that he says that. That's kind of a negative side. Well, what about a positive? Did Jesus ever go, wow, that's awesome, or marvel on that? And that actually brings us to our scripture today in Luke 7, 1 to 10. Uh, In your worship folder, there's also a a sheet you can follow along with um, before we read it. 
uh, I just want to say these few things. Uh, Scott, last week, Pastor Scott, talked about uh, how dangerous the Word of God is, how it can change our lives, how when we read it, the Spirit can work. I want us to remember that these narratives, these Gospels that we have, these aren't like Aesop's fables. These aren't Grimm's fairy tales. These are real events that happened. And uh, even in, uh, well, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that uh, Scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So as we read this, uh, rather before we read this, I want to pray that we would be able to see it in that light, that God would uh, open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to what he has to say uh, through this. So would you join me in prayer? Father God, you are good. In that goodness, you allowed, uh, you allowed men to write what they saw, what they heard. And we have that document, Father. I pray that it would be, as your word says, uh, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Help us know you better through this. Draw us to yourself. Father, open our eyes. Soften our hearts to what we need to hear. I pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. A little bit of context before we jump right into it. Uh, The Gospel of Luke, written by a man named Luke. He was a physician. And uh, verse 1, chapter 1, tells us his point in writing this narrative was so that a friend of his could have full confidence in what he had been taught regarding Jesus' life and ministry while on earth. So where we're going to, chronologically, this takes place after the Sermon on the Mount, and that will come into play as we read through. Um, The history here, uh, like I say, will come into play. The characters we're going to run into, uh, we see Jesus, obviously. We have some Jewish elders. We have a centurion uh, and his servant, and we have that centurion's friend. uh, One thing we need to note here is... The centurion is Roman. He's not Jewish. And that may, I mean, we're in America here. We have people of all nationalities. That's great. Cool. We can just blow that by. In the reading of this, for any, any Jewish person at the time, this is first century Judea. The Romans conquered it. The Romans are not seen as, hey, all right, Romans. They came in. No, they conquered the land, right? So we need to, we need to see that this even through... The, the eyes of a, of a Jewish uh, person in that time, an Israelite in that day. So from that, it is a fairly shocking story. But let's, let's jump right into it, and we'll, uh, we'll break it out a little more here in a bit. Uh, verse 1. After he, Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, that's in reference to the Sermon on the Mount, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued to him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, 
he, that is the centurion, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built our synagogue. Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at them. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And those who had been sent returned to the house, and they found the servant well. <clears throat> this is an amazing story here. This account that we read, when we, when we dive into it, knowing that, that Luke was, was setting out to put in a detailed account of the things that had happened, the, what Jesus had done, what is he drawing us, our attention to? He's not just, okay, so what happened? Uh, we went to Capernaum, he did this. He's not, he's not writing in that style. There's a purpose and a point, and I think there are a few things that he, he wants to draw our attention to. He paints for us a picture of what this centurion was like. I don't know if we have any Roman history buffs here, um, but reading up on how Rome worked, how its citizens worked and everything like that, especially a centurion, when it came to slaves and servants and how they were treated, there was no ACLU or anything like that. There were no rights for servants and slaves. They were just that. If you had a slave who was injured or was sick or could not do their task, you were well within your rights as a Roman citizen to put them out of your house. Dump them off at the side of the road, they're worthless to you, right? They, they can't do what you have them for. So this verse, uh, the second verse of this chapter, tells us something quite interesting about this centurion. It says that uh, his servant was ill, and he was a highly valued servant. Now, whether that means that this, uh, this guy had been around this centurion for many years and knew you know, his master's nuance and what he liked, what he didn't, or if it was a great personal cost to him, it doesn't say that, but he was highly valued, and the servant was in the house. He was still there. He was not cast out. So we see that this man is a caring man. Um, going through, we also see that he... Uh, loves the nation he is in. He's invested that way. Uh, the Jewish leaders there, uh, the Jewish elders, pardon me, say, he loves our nation. He built our synagogue. Not too many, uh, not too many Romans you hear about that in the Bible saying, oh yeah, I helped build this, you know, that kind of thing, or even pointing that out. But he is, he loves the Jewish people. We see that he cares for them. Uh, he works that way towards them. He's an understanding man that way. 
He also is one who uh, is able to react with information he gets. Uh, News obviously reached him. He said when he heard about Jesus, he acted. He did something, right? So he's uh, one who can process it to it. Um, We also, moving on from the centurion, we get a a glimpse at uh, Jesus' character, what he is like. Uh, as I said before, this takes place after his teaching that he did on the mountainside. If you've been here for uh, for any weeks, or if not, uh, Scott has been going through some of those teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, things that Jesus said. He said things like, love your enemies. Uh, he explained, rather than don't murder, he explained that the standard is, don't hate in your heart because it's the same as murder. He had these kinds of teachings. So, no doubt, I mean, this is, this is after it, so, and he had gone into that town, so no doubt there were probably a small crowd of people maybe followed him outside of his disciples. And here we have uh, opportunity to see if Jesus actually practiced what he preaches. So it's easy for Jesus to say, love your enemies, Right? If, if a guy asks you to go one mile, go two with him. Oh, I can say that all day long myself, but here Jesus says it. But will Jesus do it? Will he love his enemies? I mean, this, these are the Romans, after all. Does the does enemy apply to them? Do I have to love them? What does Jesus do? As we look at the whole of the story, we see Jesus heal a Gentile servant. a non-Jew's servant. Now, the story doesn't actually say what Jesus' intent was for going to Capernaum. My, I mean, I can make speculation uh, that maybe he was, I don't know, after a long time of teaching, maybe he just wanted to sit down, enjoy a meal, maybe catch a night's rest, something like this. But as he's coming into the town and as he's walking and living life, a group of people come up to him on the... Uh, on the basis of, of asking him a request from a Roman, and he follows through with this. He goes with them. Jesus doesn't have the attitude of, well, is he Jewish, this friend of yours? Uh, is, he, is he one of us? Because, you know, I'm only working on behalf of, of the Jewish people right now. He doesn't say that. That's not his attitude. He goes with those elders who pleaded their case. And when they're getting near the house... These friends, the centurion sends his friends out to him. And kind of we see more coming from the the centurion here. He says, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I am not worthy for you to enter under my roof. He didn't show up in, in person at all to make this request because he felt he was not worthy to even have him enter the, uh, his house. He sends these friends and with that, though, it's the message that he sends with them that is amazing. He sees, uh, Jesus sees rather a, a man of faith. We see his faith that he has. Uh, from the small look here, we see the faith in Jesus' authority to heal this man's servant. In, in effect, he's saying, Jesus, I, I have authority and I, I can see it. In others, I can uh, 
uh, where was I? I'm sorry. Um, I can tell people to do stuff, and they do it. They move about as I tell them to. From what I hear, you have this type of authority. You teach with authority. You explain things with authority that has not been seen. So I know when, when you say it, my servant can get healed. That's all I'm asking. Don't even, you don't even have to come into my house. Just say it, and I know it'll happen. I mean, that should, that should shock us there. But more so, verse 9 should, should uh, shock us as well. Because it says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled. And he turns to the crowd and he says something to which I, I, if I was in that crowd, I'm guessing there were quite a few Israelites in that crowd. And when Jesus says, not even in Israel have I found such faith, that's got to seem like a slap in the face to, to what was going on. Jesus, we're right here, you know, we can hear you with what you said. Uh, thanks for that vote of confidence. But it actually brings, I wonder if it brought a question to their mind, because I know it brings a question to my mind. What was it about this faith that Jesus marveled at? Why does he say that he hasn't seen faith like that in Israel? So the question asking is, what was it about the centurion's faith that made Jesus marvel? What was it he marveled at? And uh, through my study, I found uh, two things kind of jumped out to me. And, and the first is that Jesus, or rather, the centurion had a faith that was confident in the authority of Jesus. I mean, he was sold out. It, it didn't say in the scriptures that there was a centurion who had a servant, and one day he, you know, he wanted to make the guy better, so he sent out for the, the town doctor and a few other wise men that might know some things. And then he heard, oh, Jesus is here? Yeah, Jesus is cool. He can come along too. He might be able to do something. It doesn't say that. He said he heard about Jesus. And I think it's a safe assumption that he heard what he taught and things that, uh, miracles that he had performed beforehand with the healing and whatnot. And he, he goes towards that. He sees that. He is confident that Jesus can do this. Jesus, if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. That is some confidence in the authority of Christ. I know it will happen. He could have, uh, he could have just forced Jesus to show up. I mean, he is a Roman. And if he's like, hey, you come in here, you heal my servant. He doesn't have that attitude. And that actually brings us around to the second thing that jumped to my eye. He was humble. He was humble before the authority of Jesus. He doesn't test Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, let's see your resume and credentials and everything, but he's heard things about Jesus. And he doesn't put it, okay, so you healed that guy. Hey, I want you to do these routine things for me, and if you pass that test, we'll, we'll move you on up to the servant. He doesn't demand it uh, of Jesus that he come and heal his servant. He sends people who are of Jesus' people. He sends the, the town elders, as it were, to, to speak with Jesus. That's some respect there, too. That's humble, rather than showing up himself. 
And it doesn't say that on the way out, he was like, oh, and uh, be sure to tell Jesus I'm the guy that built the synagogue. That was me, just so he knows. Right? He wasn't bragging about accomplishments. And tell him I love the nation, too. Uh, all that good stuff. Anything to get him to come. He doesn't, it doesn't say that he said any of that. But it says the elders pleaded and said, this is a good man. He's, he's worthy for you to do this to him. So the centurion is both humble and confident or assured, if you will, in Jesus' authority. And Jesus had not seen that type of an attitude or that type of a faith in Israel. Going back to when he was in, um, why is it blanking? His hometown, Nazareth. There was no faith like that there. They needed signs and wonders and miracles. And I think this is where we have to ask ourselves a question. We have to ask ourselves, how does that apply to us here in 2014? That's cool. Uh, keeping in mind, this is, this is not a fable. All of this really did happen. There was a centurion who had a sick servant who sent for Jesus, who healed him, who marveled at this centurion's faith. That's all well and good, Dan, but what about me here in Philida, 2014, 21st century? What does that have to do with, it? Uh, do with us? rather? How does that affect my life? I think the same way that it affected those in the crowd when Jesus turned and said, I've never, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. I think it calls a little bit into question our faith. And I want us to do a little something. This is the uh, audience participation section. I want you to do is take your hands and cup them like this, like you're you know, scooping up some water. Just cup them like this. I'm going to require that you use your imagination a little bit. I want you to imagine that your faith is in your hands. However much. Just imagine your faith is here. Now, maybe, you know, you're happy that you're sitting down because maybe you have to move your hands out a little bit to, uh, to hold your faith. Maybe we can just move it down to one hand and we can hold it there. But this is my point. You're sitting there, you're holding your faith. You have faith. In something or someone, you have some measure of faith. And I don't want us to get hung up on comparing it. I don't want to go, oh, my faith is smaller than yours. Or, yeah, mine is great. Or compare it to the centurions and go, man, mine is rubbish compared to his. That's not the point. The point is, is we have our faith here in our hands. So go ahead and put your faith away. Congratulations, we have it. Set that down for a second. And let's ask the question that, it, that gets to it, right? That really drives at it. Once I find that question. <laughs> um, going through... The question here would be, rather than saying, you know, just testing my faith, how would my life be different? How would my life be different if I had the confidence and the humility that the centurion had in Jesus' authority? How would my life be different if I had that confidence and humility in Jesus' authority? That's the real question. It's not how good is my faith, but what would I do if I had that type of faith, no matter the measure? 
The centurion showed that he had faith, and his life was greatly affected by that assurance, by that confidence. So how would our lives be different? I answered it in three ways, and I left three blanks for you there. You can fill them in with these answers, or sit there and think about it. How would you answer this question? What would be different? For me, the first one here, I would be less prone to be angry about things out of my control. I would be less prone to be angry about things out of my control, like slow drivers on the highway, red lights that I have no control over, um, people who hurt me and don't know, or people who hurt me and don't care that they've hurt me. This anger that I feel towards them that I, I, want, I, want, to, I want to fight back at them. And Jesus is saying, no, you need to forgive. Having confidence in his authority to be humble and look at that and go, Jesus, I trust you with what you are saying and I will forgive this person, but I need to, I need to, you to help me not be angry. I put there less prone because it, it won't just go away, but we are more likely to rely on Christ for that. The second one there you see, I'd be less prone to be fearful about things out of my control. I'd be less prone to be fearful about the things out of my control. Things like angry people driving around on the road. Uh, Maybe lightning storms or some kind of storm over my head. The weather. Uh, Planes getting shot out of the sky. Wars and rumors of wars that can happen. Or a big one, death. I don't need to fear those things because of the authority of Jesus Christ. He is in control of both life and death. He died, was buried for three days, and rose. He conquered death because he can to bring us back to God, to pay the price that we were deserved to have that punishment thrown on us. We were deserving of that And he took that death. He conquered it. And as a believer in Christ, as one who has said, yes, you are the Son of God, I put full confidence in you that when I die here, that's not the end of it. I'm not dead, dead. You will raise me. This is confidence. So we don't have to be fearful. I would be less prone to be fearful about those things, death, war, all this stuff, because Jesus is in control. And in light of those two answers, being less prone to be angry and being less prone to be fearful, for me, that brings up to the third point here, that I would be more likely to take risks when sharing the gospel. And you can see where those two might interweave within that third point for me. I wouldn't be necessarily, I'd be willing to take the risk because someone might be angry at me when I share the gospel with them, right? Uh, Or rather not that they're angry with me, but that I'm angry at them, that they're not receiving it. Or I would be able to take that risk because I wouldn't fear the rejection or the insults that they might hurl at me. Jesus has has called us uh, 
as believers, as Christians, to go and proclaim his word, to preach the gospel to all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Son, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we need to do that. I need to do that. And so, resting in that authority that Christ has, I can be free to take those risks of rejection or animosity or what have you. So if you are a Christian, if you have said, Jesus, you are Lord, and I want to follow you, we need to start living. We need to live that way, just period. We need to take that he is in authority, now live like it. So, I mean, working that out, that takes some discussion, but still, we are called to live that way. If you haven't come to that place where Jesus is Lord for you, where he is Lord of your life, where you humble yourself, I pray for you that you would have your eyes opened, that you would be willing to see where the Spirit of God works on your life, that he would draw you to himself. That you would be like the centurion, that you would hear about the authority that Jesus has, and you would act on it. Not bringing anything and saying, okay, God, you have to save me because I'm this good, but resting fully on who Jesus is. So when we encounter Jesus like that, when we encounter Jesus with full confidence, when we encounter Jesus with full confidence in his authority, we can rest assured, we can rest in that confidence that our faith, however big it was, that our faith is well placed in Jesus because of who he is and what he has done. talked a bit uh, before about the marveling. What makes us marvel? The fact that the creator of the universe makes it possible for us to have a right relationship with him through the death and resurrection of his son should knock us back on our heels, make us marvel, and come to him and know that our faith is well-founded. you pray with me? Father God, I pray that in the proclaiming of your word, and proclaiming of your truth that happened here, that whatever is profitable for those to hear it, that you would recall it and, and keep it to their mind, and they would use it to draw them to ourselves. Anything that was unneeded, God, I pray that they would forget, that I would forget draw us to you because you are the giver and sustainer of life. Thank you for your creation that you've given us that we can marvel at all that is done and said in the world. You are a great God and we thank you for the opportunity we have to know you, to be in relationship with you, not just following rules, Father, but be in right relationship with you. Help us be obedient to your word. Help us understand your teachings. We pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen.